0: This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. This is David. This is Base Layer's new episode with Jake Brookman. I'm gonna keep it short and sweet on my side. This was a great conversation that encompasses everything from generalized mining to staking as a service to the evolution of crypto economics long conversation. We talked about a lot of different topics. Jake is a very, very thoughtful investor and thinker and developer in this space, a mathematician, someone who's been at hedge funds and has a pretty wide range of exposure to blockchain and to crypto. Enjoy the conversation and we look forward to talking to you soon. Also, please remember that nothing on base layer is investment advice. Do your own research. The Block is a leading news and information source in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. The team of experts provides deep, objective research, analysis, and journalism on a daily basis via its website and newsletter. Check out The Block at theblockcrypto.com. This is David.
1: And this is Amanda.
0: And this is Basslayer. I'm going to be doing a lot of the talking today. Amanda has a little bit of a raspy voice and is coming down with a New York cold because we're all getting sick here. But we're going to have some fun with this today. We have Jake Brookman with us from CoinFund. Jake, how are you?
2: I'm good. Thank you guys so much for having me.
0: It is our pleasure. Um, We were hanging out with Jake a few weeks ago at an event, and we begged him to come on because he is working on some really interesting things over at CoinFund um, is also a mathematician, someone who deeply loves math and is working on a lot of things in regards to the infrastructure of crypto. So, with that, Jake, if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself, about CoinFund, and about what you're working on.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, in blockchain, I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty much the uh, the founder and CEO of CoinFund, which is one of the earlier uh, crypto-focused research and investment firms, and in blockchain. Um, We launched around July of 2015, and uh, today we're, um, you know, we've been we've been sort of researching the space and investing in the space for uh, I guess almost three years, right? Um, Actually, even more than that, almost four years. Going to be this summer. Uh, My background is in mathematics and computer science. I spent about five years in uh, the hedge fund world here here in New York. Uh, I then went into pure tech and was a technical product manager and engineer at Amazon, uh, also here in New York, uh, working on advertising technology. Uh, and then I was a CTO of a, a little fintech startup called uh, Triton Research, where we did some very interesting um, research on private technology companies. And somewhere along the way, actually in 2011, uh, one of my friends introduced me to Bitcoin, and I was following the space ever since, and then got uh, progressively more and more into it, especially when Ethereum came
0: around. So I want to just dig into that. I didn't know that you were at a hedge fund. I knew that you were in finance. So while you were actually starting to take a look at crypto and Bitcoin and Ethereum, were you at the fund? No, uh,
2: I was actually, well, so actually, let me think about the timeline. I So I learned about Bitcoin in 2011. Um, and I was sort of, you know, casually following along but it wasn't until 2013 where one of my colleagues at was working on a hedge fund here in New York called Highbridge uh, he was one of the quantitative traders there. he actually wrote a paper about about Bitcoin because he was just personally interested in it and that's what really got me like back into it and and to say hey like let's see what's what's going on and, on the Reddit and you know I haven't looked at this stuff in a while So in a way I, I, I was into it as you say, while, while I was at the fund, but I wasn't like very actively, you know, trading it or anything like that.
0: That is so interesting that a person at Highbridge, which if I'm not mistaken, is Glenn Dubin's hedge fund. Yeah, that's correct. That is really insightful because we've heard, you know, obviously Novogratz has been saying the institutions are coming, the institutions are coming. We've been hearing, obviously, this, this beck and call. And back in 2013, you said, Someone at Highbridge, a very well-known hedge fund here in New York and throughout the world, was writing a paper on this. That is really interesting insight. Well, I want to I want to note that that it was uh, it was not so much for work that he was
2: writing it. It was just someone I knew from work, but he was doing this on kind of a personal uh, personal level. But nevertheless, um, they had some very smart people there who were obviously paying
0: attention to this kind of stuff even back then. That's right. Them and D. E. Shaw have been folks. A lot of the quantitative hedge funds have had people looking at it, so it's worth noting because our our audience and the listeners are high net worth family offices, institutional investors, and you know we're trying to affect the narrative in a positive way to let them know that institutions and very sophisticated investors have been taking a look at this for a, a few years. It hasn't just been because of 2017. It's been a few years of actual diligence on this, so
1: mm-hmm. that's
0: really interesting. Um, so the first question I think we wanted to kind of talk on and kind of dig into is this notion of generalized mining. Um, you have uh, been very um, vocal about that. So if you could tell us what it is, why now, and just give the listeners a little bit of a, a kind of a preface on kind of what this whole concept is. Totally.
2: Um, so if we sort of rewind back to you know, the days of Bitcoin and we first meet this concept of mining in the context of processing Bitcoin transactions, right? You have to have third parties running um, hardware, usually data centers at this point, um, which go ahead and process Bitcoin transactions, and then the Bitcoin protocol pays them a reward in Bitcoin. It's sort of this um, self-referential economic activity that seems to make the economics of Bitcoin possible. the Bitcoin miners mine the asset and then they go and they sell it on the market and then they use that the proceeds from that to finance kind of their operations. Now when we think of mining, we're, we usually classically, we think of, you know, this mining is for transaction processing and, and decentralized networks, which is what Bitcoin is, um, is usually a network for cryptocurrencies, it's something that implements a cryptocurrency. But What we see as the blockchain space progresses is that the number of networks, first of all, is going up wildly. And second of all, the the diversity of networks is going up wildly. So first, we had cryptocurrencies. Now, um, you know, then we had token issuance platforms like NXT and Counterparty and things like that. And then Ethereum came along and said, now you have, uh, you know, know, Turing complete smart contracts where you can do all of that stuff very, very efficiently in a few lines of code. Um, And as soon as you could create these new different networks, people started thinking about how do we apply this to different areas. So I want a network that is uh, a decentralized network for data storage. I want a network for computation. I want a network for GPUs. Uh, Then people took it even further and said, I want a social network where people quote unquote mine um, the, the curation of the network, bringing the great content up to the top. And so what we find is that, Decentralized networks, they, they need sort of their audiences or their users or, or in any case some kind of participant to instrument the services that normally would be provided by a centralized company. So in the case of you know, the social media network Facebook, you have a whole company behind it developing the software and creating all of the algorithms that curate all of the content on Facebook and also that monetize it. You know, in a decentralized social media network, you need to actually incentivize uh, the users of that network to vote upon which content is, you know, should be floating to the top. And we see that, uh, you know, being at least attempted in uh, in, in Steam it. And then you compensate those uh, those people by paying them a little bit of the token uh, of the network. And I'm making an implicit assumption there that there is a token. Um, but that's that's true most of the time. So in short, generalized mining is sort of the set of crypto-economic games that people can play with a protocol on the other end, and the protocol will basically give you some kind of compensation for, for doing work on its behalf, if that makes sense.
1: It does, um, and so when you're thinking about generalized mining, you know, I, I think that a really useful piece for a lot of our listeners, is, is that last piece you mentioned? Uh, so not necessarily what we think of as traditional mining or, or even proof of stake, but the, the general provision of services. So you know, mm-hmm. is there a specific example that you have um, of where generalized mining isn't necessarily something like um, like mining Bitcoin or maybe staking? Sure. Um, you know, Ethereum in its future state.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, so there there's there's tons of examples, but basically, you know how do I make sense of this? I kind of ask myself, you know how much hardware is involved in the mining? How much software is involved in the mining? And so if you you know if you're on one end of the spectrum, you're kind of like a traditional proof of work um, you know hardware miner. You have a data center with a lot of uh, with a lot of hardware. You know that hardware probably costs millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars and you're doing usually very computationally intensive work, uh, like proof of work or like uh, computational processing for, you know, for video rendering or something like that. And then you're getting paid uh, in the asset. On the other end of the spectrum, you have something completely the opposite of that, which is um, a lot of proprietary software and not a lot of hardware, right? So these are things like, um, can I create the best... Sort of curation algorithm on a decentralized network. Can I can I play a particular crypto economic game uh, very well? You know, so so some examples of those games might be um, various arbitrages that are available in in blockchain, like uh, liquidating CDPs or liquidating under collateralized loans in a decentralized lending protocol. Um, you know, there might be uh, certain market making. Uh, opportunities where you really need to create an algorithm and compete sort of on how smart you are and how much better your algorithm works and is more efficient than than other people who have created similar algorithms. Um, we also see like in the case of the live peer network, you see um, kind of a software mining activity, right? So they had something called a Merkle mine, which means any third party could come in, um, do a kind of proof of work called Mer- Merkle mining, and then submit proofs of that work to a smart contract and then issue the live peer tokens to the network. So in other words, it was it was a decentralized airdrop of, of sorts. And there's probably a long tail of of many other activities and activities that we haven't even excuse me invented yet uh, where we can do this kind of work. And sort of somewhere in the middle of hardware and software is uh, what we think of staking of the staking space today. And this is where where people focus most of the time when they think about, uh, or when they, when when they talk about this space, um, I think partially because that's where most of the networks uh, that that do this kind of thing are currently in production. They're proof-of-stake networks that require um, validators to put up stake and to validate the transactions of uh, of those networks. So examples of that include Cosmos, certainly Tezos. Um, you know, again, live peer transcoding in a way is is also a, a delegated proof of stake system, and and the basic economics of that is that someone, you know, puts up some hardware or at least delegates to someone who has, uh, you know, who has hardware, and then they're able to earn a you know kind of an interest rate um, or a rate of inflation on their um, on their stake.
0: So I want to dig in there a little bit because. Over the course of the last few weeks, everyone has been talking about what happened with Augur and Veal and with this whole notion of CDPs and with the potentiality of creating almost what we would see on the traditional markets of like CDS. You touched on Mm -hmm. it a little bit there. Can you you dive in there a little bit more? Because I think this is important for listeners and for the audience out there to get a sense of what is actually starting to happen in the innovation side there.
2: Well, I'm assuming you mean like, like Augur is the protocol, and Veil is sort of a uh, a, a B 2 C application built on top. Is that what you're correct. sort of correct? Correct. Yeah. So I think I mean I think this is ultimately uh, kind of the architecture that decentralized networks are going for long term, and they've always sort of hinted that this is the way that things were going to go. But basically, you know, when we think of building consumer facing applications. We think of creating a company, we think of, you know, buying some hardware, uh, doing some development, managing the database, managing the servers, um, you know, scaling our hardware and software along with uh, whatever the consumer demand is. Now, when you go over to decentralized networks, it seems that the protocol, in other words, the peer-to-peer network underneath, is the back end of that system. You don't, you kind of, you know, in principle, don't need to build your own back end, what you do is you use the decentralized network as the back end, and you are responsible for uh, creating an application on top, uh, which faces the users. And maybe uh, what this means is that a lot more emphasis is put on kind of like, what is the user experience uh, that I, that I'm building here, rather than what is the... Mechanics of the of the backend protocol uh, that I'm building, and so you see this in a number of networks. I think Augur and and Veil vale is a is a great example of this, um, and I think we'll see a lot more of this kind of you know, model or, or architecture in the future. So, um, you know, in the case of Veil, vale, you have Augur, which is a protocol for uh, for prediction markets, and you know even more specifically for resolving prediction markets in a decentralized way. And then Veil vale is kind of a consumer land uh, app on top. It's uh, it has a compliance layer. It surfaces uh, the you know the the markets that uh, that maybe are compliant to is to, to whatever jurisdiction it's facing at that time. Um, and it also provides a kind of um, a kind of liquidity, right? Because because to resolve auger markets usually takes a number of weeks. You know those markets can go into dispute that could last for weeks. We just saw that with. Uh, was sort of the top market on on Augur that was in dispute recently, um, and uh, what Veil does is it might be able to just cash people out uh, much earlier than that when it has high confidence that the markets would be resolved correctly. In other words, they take you know they could take some risk on that um, you know earn a, earn a spread there. So again, that model um, you know I think you'll see that not only in in Veil but you'll see that in um, you know, maybe dashboards that live on, on top of the Augur protocol that, <clears throat> that give you visibility into the protocol. Uh, there might be um, sort of more specialized applications, like, for example, imagine building, I don't know, synthetic, um, you know, stocks based on, the, based on prediction market outcomes, um, looking at the actual stock market. So it's like exposure to Apple stock where you don't actually hold Apple stock underneath, um, and you can imagine all kinds of different applications like that built on top of the protocol.
0: That is deeply fascinating. And so, we've been been hitting on kind of the protocol and the different protocols that are out there. Let's focus a little bit more on Ethereum for right now. And if you could maybe give the listeners um, a rundown of the current state of of the state of development of kind of any concerns that you have. Obviously, Constantinople got delayed until the end of this month, February. So maybe you can give us um, a little bit of a rundown of what you think is happening there.
2: Sure. Um, So at this point, it looks like, you know, the Ethereum folks, uh, the Ethereum developer community are kind of coming together to try to figure out what the roadmap for Ethereum 2.0 looks like. I have to say, it's a, it's a, first of all, it's a, Exceptionally complicated problem the problem of scale, you know, first of all, of, of blockchain scalability and, and proof of stake consensus, um, and second of all, of migrating an existing system like Ethereum, which, you know, is pretty much the second or third largest such system in the world, you know, into a completely different architecture over time. And so this is an ex- incredibly challenging task, and I think we should definitely. Um, you know, recognize that and 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 sort of give props to, to to the people who are working on it. But that being said, you know, it, it does seem like um, a very long roadmap. It has uh, a number of phases. Sort of the, the the earliest phase coming, you know, maybe this year uh, would be the launch of the of the of the beacon chain, which is going to be a chain that coordinates uh, these basically data silos in Ethereum called shards. Um, you know, and then there's a lot of technical work to uh, to take the current Ethereum, uh, to, you know, to integrate that into that system, to uh, create, you know, a, a good proof of stake system where people, where validators are staking uh, Ether on this new chain and providing consensus to the network. And then over time, uh, one of the major issues becomes like, how do you coordinate the data between shards? So if I'm like on one shard and... Excuse me, I want to interact with a, with a contract on a different shard. How does inter-shard communication work? It looks like the impact of this roadmap is pretty immense. Uh, you know, I think over time, all of, the, all of the developer tooling has to be redone. All of the compilers have to be updated. The way that developers might have to think about security or, or how they think about coding in Solidity or whatever other language comes along on top of a sharded Ethereum, um, you know, that's going to get a little bit more complex, potentially. Um, but to me, the biggest takeaway here is that um, when you select a certain kind of infrastructure for, for a blockchain, then you're setting yourself up to serve a certain set of use cases. And the, and the the analogy that I always have in my mind is databases, right? We don't have a database to rule them all. We have... SQL databases for structured queries. We have graph databases for giant applications like Facebook that have to do with social graphs. We have document stores. We have key value stores for the web, right? Every kind of database, they're optimized for certain activities, but not others. And in the same way, I think you will see that the different blockchains, including Ethereum in its sharded form, are you know, perhaps really good for certain sets of applications uh, or a certain design space and not, and not other sets of applications. And, and basically, you know, as I read through the Ethereum roadmap, I kind of said to myself, now I can point to actual technical reasons why I think, you know, there's no uh, single blockchain world. I mean, we always, we always believe that. Um, but now here's some actual technical reasons why, you know, there, here's a certain class of applications that wouldn't work that well. You know, in this architecture, it would need another kind of architecture to work well.
0: So, before Amanda goes into some of the questions, I know she wants to eagerly ask sharding. You know it, I know it. Amanda knows it. A lot of the listeners may, but some people might have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a complex. Sure. It's a complex concept. Sometimes, um, so is zero knowledge proofs. But you touched on sharding a lot obviously ethereum's taking a look at it tell if you could i know it's kind of complex but if you could try to explain it if you could to like almost a five-year-old how would you explain sharding
2: yeah i mean so on a very very high level basically today what you have is is ethereum is a kind of this kind of data store right because the uh you know The the data is basically stored in the network and is secured by the consensus um, of the Ethereum protocol. Now, what happens is when someone wants to mutate data, basically only like one person uh, in the world at a time, and when I say at a time, I just mean like per block, right, can mutate that data. And... The idea of sharding is to say like why do we have to have this bottleneck where only, you know, essentially like one block can mutate, mutate data at a time? Why don't we separate that data into different buckets that are unrelated to each other and therefore we can update them all at once and so we create parallelization. We create the ability to, you know, to basically scale the number of transactions because those transactions can be taking place at the same time in parallel whereas right now they're taking place uh, serially, one after the other, right? And so, what sharding is is basically a scheme to turn um, a single chain Ethereum into kind of a multi-chain Ethereum, where every shard is um, is kind of a different, you know, data silo in the abstract, or or different blockchain, if you will, um, and all those are coordinated by the central beacon chain in the middle. So, sharding is just another way of saying, hey, let's um, separate our data into buckets so we can operate it on it more quickly.
1: Um, So one of the things that I want to focus in on um, was that you mentioned the idea that, you know, we can now prove that there is no one blockchain to rule them all. Um, And I think that there's been a lot of interesting innovation um, from a smart contract platform perspective. Um, you know there there are various groups, clearly that Ethereum is going to be optimizing for scalability. There are other groups um, optimizing for privacy, others optimizing for developer ease of use. Um, if you were to think about maybe the next five years or so, what do you think this landscape looks like? Um, and are there any specific projects if, if you can um, name specific projects that you think are interesting in the way they're optimizing?
2: Well, I mean, I think I think there's I think there are different I think there are different approaches to scalability, right? and and I, I think what tends to happen is, you know, in blockchain, projects are very forward-looking. They're saying, you know, it's so early in our industry as a whole. It's so early in our project. We have to build out our, our infrastructure first and then sort of worry about, you know, mass adoption later. You know, when investors come into the space, they say blockchain sucks because nobody is using this stuff. And sort of the, you know, the the blockchain response often is, yeah, but it's so early, we didn't even get to build our, our tech stack yet, and you're already blaming us for, for not getting customers. I mean, in, in some sense, both points of view um, are kind of fair. But different people start to think about different ways of creating scalability and different you know, use cases. And um, I, I think like one really important observation there is, is layer two. And that's the observation, kind of that started with Bitcoin Lightning Network, to say, look, we can move a lot of these transactions off chain, and then we can have a base layer. But another extremely uh, important observation in scalability is, I think, this idea that uh, that uh, the different blockchains serve different use cases and different applications. When we get to that stage in the, you know, in the uh, in the life cycle of our industry, where, where now everybody is building like consumer or business facing applications. Um, that all of those applications are going to want to optimize for their, for their use case. And projects that have seen this and, and have kind of called this out, like, for example, might be projects like Cosmos or Polkadot. Um, I think at the Polkadot white paper, they go into this concept of heterogeneity. You know, Polkadot is essentially a blockchain of blockchains, um, where a lot of different kinds of blockchains are stitched together in a single system. And those blockchains are different from each other. And that's a good thing because you want to support different kinds of uh, blockchains that optimize for different things for different use cases of applications that come later. I'll give you like a super extreme example of this, right? You know, think about Facebook. What did Facebook have to do uh, in a fully centralized way, right, to scale their app to support like billions of people on the planet? Well, what they had to do was they had to create um, you know, this concept of a graph database, and they had to deploy it on this like, insanely massive scale. And nobody in the world, no other company, has a graph database probably um, the size of Facebook's. And why did they do that? Well, because they're solving a particular problem where you know, the, the, the most common query, perhaps, in their system is, you know, who are Amanda's friends? Who are David's friends? And that system, uh, excuse me, that query is really hard to do at scale, you know, in a SQL database. But in this new architecture, it's actually extremely, extremely efficient. And so, you know, as a thought experiment, if you, you know, if you think about like, what will it take to implement uh, Facebook on a blockchain at scale? The answer is, well, you're going to need a graph database if you actually want to serve billions of people and that says to me that there <clears throat> in the future somebody might invent uh, a blockchain architecture that looks like that and serves that sort of uh, you know that 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 sort of uh, that sort of use case and that sort of uh, topology of of the network and so now when when projects are kind of reaching there's certain projects in our space they're reaching this point where either they're actually trying to go to market or they're trying to look forward one year and say you know, I think I'm going to go to market a year from now. This is really the time when they're starting to think about like, well, what blockchain am I on? Like, it's nice that I have a proof of concept today, but is this really going to scale to my, to my business use case? And is, Or is this going to overwhelm whatever network I'm on? And I think that this, this year, 2019, is going to be this year where a bunch of projects reach that, that stage. And then they start to look around and say, you know what is the best architecture for me to be on? What is the best network for me to be on? And um,
0: should I go there? So, touching on the best protocol, <clears throat> the best the best blockchain. Talking about tokens. Talking about the drivers, the incentive models of how those protocols work: proof of work, proof of stake. Proof of uh, proof of history, whichever ones out there, whichever consensus algorithm that you uh, that you can think of these days. Talk to us a little bit about the economics. Some call it crypto economics. Some call it token e- economics. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you think that means to you and to CoinFund. Talk to us about kind of the valuation metrics that have to go into the economics of the token and the network.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a huge topic, um, and I wonder if I could do it justice in just a, a single response, but I'll, I'll certainly try.
0: We'll have um, you back on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we can certainly devote a whole episode to just this. But you know, but essentially, um, I would say the, the way that crypto economics touches us at CoinFund most often is in two ways. One is if we're perhaps thinking with a founder uh, through Kind of how to implement a certain system, and two, <clears throat> if we're evaluating a particular project for, for investment, right? And, and the, the usual question about crypto economics in a particular network is, are they sound, uh, you know, out of the gate? And, and two, are they, you know, are they structured in such a way that whatever we're investing in, does it capture value? So often that is, you know, often that is a token, and then the question becomes, does this token capture value? Now there's been a ton uh, of of information written on this topic in our in our industry over the last two to three years. You know, um, first, it was like cryptocurrencies. are they are they uh, are they actually valuable? Um, is the idea that they're like a technological unit of account medium of exchange? Is that actually a valuable thing? or are they purely speculative? Then we went into utility tokens. Utility tokens have you know gone out of style. Uh, very much so uh probably partially for regulatory reasons because they're like <clears throat> very associated with, with ICOs, partially because people have kind of argued that there's this thing called a velocity problem that would send the price of utility tokens to zero. Now I, I have a you know I have my own kind of contrarian view on that topic which we can discuss. Uh, other tokens that we've seen in, in um in the market are and these are kind of the tokens de jour that everybody is sort of looking toward right now. Uh, one is governance tokens, and the other is uh, what Kyle Samani calls work tokens, or, or 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 the tokens of staking networks. And the idea is that, so for governance tokens, it might be the case that token holders in a protocol are you know wishing to vote uh, for for upgrades in the protocol. Uh, and that might be a valuable activity. so there's a lot of a lot of folks kind of thinking about like why and why governance might be valuable and how to calculate the value of that of that governance in a network that's that's out in production. And then the work token model is along the lines of like, hey, if you want to run nodes in a network, you have to stake some of your tokens to make sure that you are you know, abiding by the protocol and you're not doing anything bad. And this is actually a really nice model uh, in the following way. You can hide those tokens from the end consumer of your network. It's often, those tokens are often used on the back end to, to create security around the, the nodes of the network. And that's what you see very much in, in Livepeer. Now, when it comes to the, you know, when it comes to the customer of, you know, Livepeer, this is a per, person or business who's buying video transcoding services, They're going to be paying in you know an ether or potentially some other cryptocurrency or maybe even a stable coin they're not thinking about um kind of the work token in the back end so at you know at the moment governance tokens and work tokens seem to be the kinds of tokens that are um you know the best candidates for for capturing value and i think like the jury is pretty much still out on you know things like utility tokens uh you know and others
1: Um, I want to get in a little more um, to your contrarian view of the token velocity problem because I think that's, um, you you know, of of all of the uh, potential issues with um, utility tokens, right, the fact that the value is going to have to go to zero in order for the token to move through the system at a a fast enough pace to be valuable to an end consumer is, um, is relevant but oddly specific. So tell us a little bit about your contrarian view.
2: Sure. Um, so, so my contrarian view kind of comes from, my, from, a, from a philosophical point of view on what it means to have a valuation model. So I'll, I'll describe the problem. So a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of projects said what we're going to do is we're going to create some kind of service and then we're going like, to create a token that customers have to pay. In other words, it's a local currency that is exchangeable for a specific kind of ser- service on that network. Um, customers will have to pay that to get the service. So the 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 most quintessential utility token is really ether, right? Because what you do is you take ether and then you pay it to the Ethereum computer for computation services. So when you say utility token, think ether. And the you know what what folks uh, have been trying to do is they've been trying to evaluate cryptocurrencies and utility tokens, and they appeal to. You know this this concept from traditional economics called the quantity theory of money, and this famous equation MV equals PQ. Um, and you know without going into the technical details of that, essentially what, what this what this equation says, and it's a tautological uh, equivalence, right? It says that if the velocity of how fast your tokens trade hands in your economy, if that velocity increases, then actually the value Uh, decreases and, and then eventually goes to zero as the velocity becomes high. And so the main criticism of utility tokens, you know, is essentially that, hey, nobody actually, like in a world of thousands of these utility currencies, nobody has actually any reason to hold them for any length of time. And if people are not holding them, they're trading hands. And if they're trading hands, the velocity is increasing. And if the velocity is increasing, then the price goes to zero. Now, this is a nice theory um, but my personal standard for what it means to have kind of a a, you know evaluation model for something uh, is that it is empirically verifiable it has kind of like a, a, a good standing in practice and I'll give you an example right if you guys are familiar with banks you're familiar with this concept of you know VAR value at risk every morning the bank wakes up and they calculate this probability of like You know what's the you know i'm gonna i'm gonna drop my assets are gonna drop five percent in value you know with a certain probability they kind of want to know what their daily fluctuation would be now all of these models are based on a highly fraught assumption that you know let's say securities returns can be modeled as a normal distribution and everybody that's a model that doesn't work all the time You know, in extreme cases, when everything gets correlated, when you have a financial crisis of 2008, all those models break down. But here is my point. That's true, but 99% of the time, that model actually gives you a very, very nice prediction about your value at risk. Now the problem with MV equals PQ is that it has never predicted a single price of any asset in crypto ever and has no empirical standing um, kind of in the space today. And you can explain that, you know, very easily. The, the explanation is that, you know, utility tokens don't behave that way because that's not the way that they're, that they're used and traded. Today, they're traded purely speculatively. And because there's this insane speculative component, if that relationship that the quantity theory of money describes actually exists, you can't really see it. And then the question becomes, comes are you going to be able to see it in the long term and i mean when we see it we see it that's that's sort of like my position on it and until then i it, it's a it's a theory
0: so effectively would you then so ethereum is a speculative asset people transmit it people buy it people hold it because they think like bitcoin it might have a future value higher than it is today correct correct
2: I mean, in my view, it is unquestionable that the price of Ethereum today is a sentiment-based price on on sort of expectations of what Ethereum can do in the future. And what it is not is a, or at least this is not the, the, the major component of Ethereum price today, right? What it is not is saying like all of these dApps are built in Ethereum and they're creating actual cash flows and those cash flows... Are being evaluated and affect the price of of ether as kind of the base currency of the system i don't think that's what's happening at all
0: so in the ecosystem right now and this is a leading question but are there assets that have been developed that are not speculative
2: um absolutely so if you if you then look at um you know crypto economic design of different tokens i would say that again like going back to you know, work tokens. These tokens often have a really good case to say, you know, we're going to like the price of this is going to increase when the demand for the network will will increase. You know, and and I'll give you I'll give you like a simple case from Livepeer, right? So if a lot of people start using the Livepeer network for transcoding, that means the back end of Livepeer is going to have to have more transcoders to meet that demand. If you want to become a transcoder on Livepeer, you're going to have to submit some work tokens uh, and stake them you know, in order to, to, to activate um, your, your decentralized business. And that will create demand for, for Livepeer tokens, and therefore Livepeer token price should, should increase. So this is a very like simple argument uh, for why. And you can you notice like in, in, in that case versus the utility token case, um, these transcoders have a lot of reason to hold and stake the, that asset in, instead of increasing the velocity. So even if the velocity problem exists and is real, um, I don't think it will have as high of an impact on, on that kind of token model.
0: Another kind of current topic or things that have been transgressing around crypto Twitter and some of the other stations like Telegram is staking as a service. Yeah, uh, We talked about generalized mining. But maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of a, an opinion, if you have one, on Staking as a service. Sure. Um,
2: so, so I, you know, I generally, I really appreciate all the companies that are working in that space. I know recently we had uh, Stake US raise money, Figment Capital, Figment Networks. Um, there is a bunch of folks. Uh, Chorus One, right, is another is another uh, such service looking at the Cosmos right now very carefully. So there's a lot of companies in that space. Um, and I think it's a, it's a very, very interesting space. Now, as an investor, you know, as an investor, I, I actually have two sort of opportunities here. I can go and I could do staking myself through CoinFund where I can go and I can invest in such a, you know, in such a, in such a business. Now, I think as a business, these things are really, really risky. And I'll tell you why. Because their business model depends on... Um, A certain kind of crypto economics that is just like not present in all networks so so first of all out of the gate when you say I'm a staking company you're kind of limiting yourself to this uh, set of generalized mining opportunities and it almost doesn't ever include you know traditional mining and almost almost never includes kind of the the really proprietary software intensive like quantitative trading kind of stuff what staking companies today are really focused on is specifically this sort of of proof-of-stake protocol. And um, there's a problem, right? To get into these networks, to be a staker, you need to have tokens. And some networks uh, that do proof-of-stake have delegated proof-of-stake, and other networks don't have delegated proof-of-stake. If you're uh, in a network where you have delegated proof-of-stake, this is great, because what you can say is I'm going to go into that market, I'm going to market myself as a trusted brand, people will delegate to me, I'll take a commission on their delegation and I'll earn money on that and I'll get access to the network that way. But if the network doesn't have delegated proof of stake, then you're sort of looking at this network and you're saying, you know, how do I get in? And the way that you get in is that you have to go and buy asset on the market. But you're, you know, you just raised money for staking services and you're not really a fund. And you didn't have early access to that network. And so you're, you're stuck with this barrier where you have to pay a lot of money, potentially, you know, to enter into this network. But you don't really have the right kind of capital you know, to do that. Now, in those scenarios, you can't delegate. You can't get a third party on chain to get you access to the network. It necessarily uh, has to be off chain. You know, if you, if you want to try to get a dele, you know, delegation model but not on protocol, it has to be in, you know, in a, in a kind of a, a real world, um, you know, corporate structure sort of situation. And then you get into, you know, regulatory gray areas, you get into money transmission, you get into New York State bit license. And it's really like a feels like a large barrier um, for those companies. maybe someone will solve that. And so, so that's sort of the structural issue, like I'm, I'm bound to this particular kind of network as a quote-unquote staking company. Um, but, but there's a second issue, and the second issue is, is that when you create returns through staking, what happens is that the protocol pays you tokens. And so what you actually get is two different kinds of rates of return. One is the token denominated return, I'm earning 5% on my token stake in tokens. And the other kind of return is the fiat denominated return. Hey, my cryptocurrency just went down 75%. So you could be making money in a token denominated sense, but losing money in a fiat denominated sense. And so when we, you know, as an investor at CoinFund, like when we look at, you know, should we stake on this network or that network, we're not just looking at what is the staking return and is it bigger than some other network staking return, we're looking at do we believe in this network long term? It's actually an investment decision into the network, and the act of staking is an optimization on our exposure to that network. If we're super bullish on some network, we want more tokens. And if we can use technology to get more tokens by by uh, you know by doing a staking service, why why don't we do that? And so, in some sense, today, staking is very much a A very risky investor kind of activity rather than a service provider activity. Now, the good news is that in, you know, we're getting more and more tools that allow us to deal with this issue. And for example, what you what you'll be able to do, I think, on chain pretty shortly is to say, okay, look, I'm going into this network. I'm starting to stake on it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a short position on the principle and what, it, what that does is it neutralizes my exposure to the asset, and then I can just skim that return. And it's not perfect, right, because you have to kind of, like, withdraw the returns and immediately liquidate them for fiat and stuff. But it, it looks like there might be models on the horizon where these companies can control their risk better. It's not available uh, fully today.
0: So I could tell that we're going to have you back on because, one, I want to hear you, you said it, you know, that you can talk For an hour at least if not more on 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 our show about uh, about crypto economics two you also seem like you have a ton of information and insight into the staking and generalized binary which we know obviously already and so you're definitely going to come on uh we're gonna (laughs) we're gonna track it down again like we did the other the other week and make sure we get you on the air again but we also like to do a segment now where we get to know our guests a little bit more on a personal level Everyone in crypto is, you know, for the most part, a, a deep thinker um, and some people that are multidisciplinary, they're reading, they are coding, they are doing all sorts of things to try to understand the evolution and the disruption and the revolution that this particular technology can have on society. So with that, we'd like to get to know a little bit more about you on a personal level. I'm going to ask you two quick ones Amanda's got one about uh, something else but mm-hmm. for me I want to know what your favorite band is because I think music has an amazing way of telling a lot about a person and then <laughs> also about books uh, I've been our friend Ariana Simpson is trying to read a hundred books this year I don't know if I can kind of compete with that but I've been trying to read as many as I can um thanks Shane and the folks at Farnham Street for the help on trying to read a little bit more effectively so favorite band and favorite book for me and then Amanda's got a few for you
2: yeah sure that's thank you for asking that question I really appreciate it um well you know I grew up in Jersey so I grew up in kind of like the punk scene so growing up I listened to a lot of Nirvana a lot of like you know, misfits type stuff. A lot of uh, also classic bands like The Doors and and Pink Floyd. These days, I'm I'm a little bit more mellow. I like um, Natalia Lafourcade. She's like a Mexican performer. Um, I like Portugal The Man. I, I don't think I have like a one favorite band, but those those are some that I that I've been like listening to lately. Um, sorry, what
0: was your second item? And then your favorite book that you've read, over oh, the course oh. of course, the last month or two.
2: Oh. Um, so, you know, these days I spend a lot of time in, you know, not so much in, in fiction, but usually usually definitely um, nonfiction. Um, most of the stuff I read is, of course, uh, for the research purposes and, and So I read a lot of Medium articles. But in terms of books, um, I've, been, I've been listening to The Master Switch by Tim Wu on, on, uh, on oh, audiobook. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Been, very, right very now.
2: relevant. Very, very relevant to uh, what we're doing here. Couldn't agree more.
1: Um, and one other question. So um, one of like the eternal struggles I've had living in New York City is finding places with really good tacos. So what is what is the best place you've had tacos in New York City? This is really just selfish. I'm just figuring out where I'm going to eat dinner <laughs> later.
2: Uh, oh man, I've definitely had really good taco tacos at like pretty gourmet places but it's just totally escaping me uh what the names of those places are I could tell you I have a taco place in my neighborhood called I live in Williamsburg um it's called Mesa Coyoacan um and they have some great tacos I wouldn't I don't know if they're like the best tacos in the city but it's definitely worth checking out if you like margaritas and and kind of upscale uh Mexican food cool. good to know
0: awesome, awesome. Well, this was a great conversation with Jake, and we appreciate you being on the show today. As I said, we're definitely going to have you back to talk about all the different things that you're working on at CoinFund and some of the thoughts you're having on generalized mining, Ethereum, smart contracts, everything that we talked about today. If you uh, want to get, if people want to get a hold of Jake and the folks at CoinFund, can you tell them where to go?
2: Totally. Uh, just check out our website, coinfund.io, or if you want to uh, if you want to just email us, just Uh, Hit up info at coinfund.io. We also have uh, pretty regular meetups we do called Rabbit Hole Talks, where we have blockchain founders deep dive on their different systems. Um, If you go on our website, you could sign up to our mailing list, and then you'll get uh, notifications about all all of those um, all of those events that we host. yeah, and, and on the generalized mining piece, keep an eye out. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be making some uh, announcements of uh, projects that we've been working on for a while in that area. So I'm very excited for that.
0: Amazing. So this was Jake Brooklyn at CoinFund. You've had the information on how to get a hold of him, go to some of the meetups, and we'll be talking to you again soon. Jake, thank you.
2: Awesome. Thank you, David that's and Amanda. Thank you for having me on. Thanks